Thank you for downloading this episode of Heartland Podcast. My name is Rasmus Quisgard, and I'm the program director of talks at Heartland Festival. The talk you're about to hear is called On Instruments of Change. It's a live conversation that took place at Heartland Festival in 2016 in front of 1,500 people in our talks tent. The conversation is between Brian Eno and Bjarke Ingels. Brian Eno is an English musician, producer and music thinker. He's widely respected for his consistently progressive approach to music and his work with Roxy Music, U2 and David Bowie, to name a few. He sounds like this. I more and more want to get away from that. This is against my own interests, I'm arguing here. I want to get away from the idea of the gifted and separate individual and to try to think of the culture as a kind of ecology where lots and lots of people are important. The Danish architect Bjarke Engels has gained international renown for his innovative projects and has been called one of the most influential and visionary people of his generation. He sounds like this. Sometimes you talk about skilled incompetence when, when in an organization that faces change, uh, is that when you're, so, when you're so good at what you do, you already know the answer before you even started uh, questioning the, the situation. The talk is moderated by the musician and prize-winning radio presenter Christian Lett, and he sounds like this. Do you think the way we consume art in this way, in this venue, has changed uh, since, let's say, not 2,000 years ago, but 10,000 years ago, or even 50,000 years ago, because we, knew, we know humans produced art, and we know they did it in special places and for special occasions. The conversation revolves around the meaning of collective or individual genius, and the question of why artists do what they do. They discuss what makes the insignificant human race so significant, they reflect on the effects of human creativity, and they debate if we have reason to fear the future. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And uh, it's quite an experience and an honor for me to be part of this panel uh, with uh, my good friend and uh, uh, comic book hero, Bjarke, and my lifelong uh, inspirer, Brian Eno. So this is quite big for me as well. Uh, and I think this talk is interesting because uh, Putting you people together, it was not my idea. I think it's a good idea. I think it's a part of the, uh, the signature of this festival. This festival is quite uh, different. And walking around here in this uh, kaleidoscope of art and food and uh, music, it, uh, it seems both very utopian, futuristic, almost, as, almost the perfect way to uh, consume culture and art. But there's also a grand old castle, and it also reminds me of, of something almost aristocratic. I think we feel, you know, kind of posh to be walking around here almost. So I, I want to open this by asking you, Brian, seeing this festival, seeing all these different uh, expressions of human um, invention, creativity, what does it say? Why do we feel the need to do this, and why have we been doing this for so long, creating and consuming art and culture? Thank you. Um, thank you all very much for coming. And once again, thank you to Caroline and Michael for putting this on. Um, and thank God the weather has been good. <laughs> um, so the question you asked is actually, funnily enough, the question that has been obsessing me since I was about 17 years old. 
When I was 17, I had a girlfriend who had a very, very intelligent mother. And that mother became my sort of guru for some years. And she was very interested in the sciences. She had a sort of salon in Cambridge where scientists would come. I met Francis Crick there and John Kendrew and Enrico Fermi and a lot of amazing scientists. And she liked me. And one day she sat me down and she said, I don't understand why somebody with a brain as good as yours is going to waste it being an artist. <laughs> and that set me wondering mm. why one would want to be an artist and why, why we want art, in fact. Why don't we just all do science? You know, science obviously produces results. We all live with those results. They're all around us. Science is practical, makes good sense. And it's very inspiring, too, mm. you know. It's not, it's not unimaginative or anything like that. It's not dull. So I started thinking about this question of what do artists do and why do we want artists? Why do we want art? Now, I could consume the rest of this 50 minutes and the next two or three days answering that question. So I shouldn't go too far into it. But um, I started to think that what science did, the difference between science and art, was that science was really interested in trying to find out how this world works. If you ask any scientist what they're doing, they'll say, well, I'm just fascinated by spectacles, so I just really want to see how they worked. Or I'm fascinated by water, I really want to understand water. If you ask artists what they're doing, they generally tell you to bugger off, or, or, the, or they don't really have an answer to the question. They say, I just like doing it. Um, so you say, but why do you like doing it? And what you realize is that what artists like is to build new worlds of some kind, unfamiliar worlds. They want to build other possible realities. And in doing that, understand something about this reality, reflect back on this reality. So this is a very, very, very poor answer to that question. But the, the long answer is, takes a long time, and it divides into five different parts. <laughs> that was just the prelude to part one. <laughs> well, I think... Um, it, it, even though I would actually like that, I think it would be too bad for Bjarke if, if we actually spent the entire 50 minutes with, with one answer. But, uh, uh, but I, know it, it's, I know that it's one of your big... Uh, um, Subjects. One of the things you've been working with is this this general idea. Uh, but uh, seeing it here, do you think the way we consume art in this way, in this venue, has changed uh, since, let's say, not 2,000 years ago, but 10,000 years ago, or even 50,000 years ago? Because we knew we know humans produced art, and we know they did it in special places and for special occasions. So, do you think this is actually? Uh, all that novel, or is it just uh, a new frame? Well, something that I find very, very interesting and that not many people know is that the human brain has been shrinking for at least the last 20,000 years. Mm. So the human brain is about 15% smaller now than it was 20 years ago, mm. 20,000 years ago. Mm. Now, in evolutionary time, that's a very short time mm. for such a very big change. So there are a lot of questions about why that happened. My own theory is that it's because we don't need so much brain, because we share so much of everybody ah. else's. 
If you think of 20,000 years ago, you had to be a complete individual. You had to be able to catch food, prepare food, defend yourself. You had to do a whole lot of different things. Now you can afford just to be a bloody musician. <laughs> I, do, I don't have to understand anything else. I, I, I can understand. I know how to repair a bicycle, but aside from that, I can't really do anything else. You know, mm. I don't know how to grow food. I don't know how to build a house. Mm. He might. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to do many of the things that I need to survive, mm. but I borrow everybody else's brain. So although my personal brain is smaller than 20,000 years ago, my collective brain mm. is enormous. So one of the things I think culture is doing is somehow exercising that collective brain. Mm. It's the conversation that that collective brain is having. Mm. This is the, big, the prelude to section two of my answer, by the way. <laughs> we might get through the preludes at least. <laughs> yeah, Actually, like, um, um, this thing about the, the collective, um, there's, uh, there's a book called The Rational Optimist uh, yeah. that you probably know. Uh, that, that starts with this like, nice image of a hand axe and a mouse, like a computer mouse and a hand axe. Uh, there's like sort of, um, I think like uh, 10,000 years uh, between them. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, one is created by a single individual by manipulating a single material with, uh, with his hands until it became the axe he wanted. Uh, the other one, no single human being alive on the planet today would be able to uh, uh, create it because it involves so many sort of uh, professions, so many sciences, so many skill sets that it's only because we somehow invented uh, distribution of labor and collaboration that we are capable of undertaking uh, like so massive things, uh, including uh, building cathedrals or, or traveling to other planets. Yeah. Um, and then I think the second thing of what you said, um, I was thinking about, you said like, why do, why do we need, uh, why would a smart person uh, become an artist uh, uh, and, and what's the purpose of art? And you know, Nietzsche, he came up with the concept of the artist philosopher, which was the idea, instead of being sort of almost like a, an arch librarian governing uh, eternal truth, the philosopher, the philosopher became a creative thinker mm -hmm. that created new concepts that we could use to advance uh, our life and our society. Um, and I think, I, I, I always describe architecture, I always describe it as the art and science of creating uh, the world we would like to live in. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and in a way, I, I like this idea of pragmatic utopia, yeah. uh, where you, you try to imagine the world the way you wish it was, mm -hmm. and then you literally try to sit down and build it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I, I like that very much. Um, when, when I started, when I really felt I started making music was when I thought I was making the music that belonged to the future that I wanted to live in. Mm. So I, I tried to imagine this world that I wanted to live in and the music that you would have there. And the music didn't exist when I had this idea, so I had to make it. And that was really where things like music for airports came from. They came from projecting a future that I hoped to create by building some of the objects that belonged in that future. Do you see what I mean? So I thought, if you put the objects there, even though the rest of the future didn't exist, it would start to grow around those objects. That was the plan. But actually, like, Has there was it a, worked? <laughs> it did. I, 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 I think there's, a, there's another thing there, which is the, um, <clears throat> um, sometimes the expectations. Because I mean, I, 
I, I've obviously noticed that the, um, a lot of your music has this like cinematic uh, quality uh, and um, like creating these like almost like landscapes or like very rich, uh, dense atmospheres. And, and you, uh, you talked about that when you were a kid, you listened uh, a lot to um, movie soundtracks, film soundtracks, and you would, without having seen the films, uh, and it reminded me because of, uh, I wanted to be a cartoonist when I, when I was a kid. Uh, and I used to, because uh, I didn't have an allowance enough to buy all the graphic novels that I wanted, so I would go to the local bookstore, and then I would like flip through them, but like not long enough to, uh, to really read them, and get kicked out, but more like sort of uh, enough to sort of get, get a good feeling. But like somehow when I finally like put together the cash to acquire a certain one, then the actual story could no way live up to my <laughs> anticipation <laughs> of like what all this imagery could, uh, yeah. could actually be. Yeah. Mm. Well, this is always the problem people have when they read a book and then see the film. Because of course, when you're reading, your imagination is painting a picture which perfectly suits you. And when you go and see the film, it's somebody else's picture. Yeah, well, I mean, imagination, the imagination of a child is really so fertile, and it takes about 11 years of education to really get rid of it. <laughs> you know. But I, I think... I, um... The, the interesting thing is also that there's one difference between the, the, also the, the, the objects you can use, the mouse or the hand axe, and what we're talking about. Uh, because even though we, people can hopefully live in the houses you built, Bjarke, you actually have ambitions to do something else with it. So there's that. Uh, besides making something very uh, convenient, well-functioning, and properly designed, and actually creating stuff that nobody said they could use before you started imagining it. For example, your music mm -hmm. for the future, which was basically your own idea fix that you just worked on. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what do you think, why do you think there's that? Uh, uh, or what, what, what is the driving force between, you know, making food that tastes more than just good? It, this is a place where, for example, we are researching food that tastes novel and new and, and almost otherworldly, the food of the future. And that uh, extra urge, you could build straight-up houses. You started your career being uh, uh, actually criticized for not doing that. What's that extra thing? Why, why do we have that urge? Well, isn't, isn't the biggest thrill to find yourself somewhere that you didn't expect to be, mm. to, to create a situation that suddenly surprises you. Mm. That's what jokes are all about, you know. And you're, I think as an artist, you're constantly trying to create a punchline that you didn't expect. Um, so you, and, and as a cook, actually, the funny thing about cooking, I realized listening to Ruthie Rogers last night, is, of course, it's, it's quite restricted in a way as an art form because it wouldn't be very successful if people vomited when they ate it no. or, or threw it away or something like that. You have, to make, you have to have some sort of envelope of acceptability. And of course, there's a limit to the number of ingredients you can mm. use. You, as yet, you can't use coal and tar and gasoline in your yet. cooking, as yet. In, in I'm small sure, doses. I'm sure someone's working on it right now. But the thrill is taking these familiar things mm 
and suddenly doing something surprising and different with it. But I don't, I don't think that's that different from what artists are doing all the time. Just saying, hey, you thought you understood this, check this out, <laughs> you know. Yeah. You thought you understood uh, all the black notes on the piano, which is basically what a lot of my music is. <laughs> that's the terrible secret. <laughs> so don't repeat it beyond this room. <laughs> <laughs> I, I taught my kids they could just press them and then it sounds, if they hold down the sustain hold pedal the at the thing, same yeah, time, then you, you're done. Brian Eno's career. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, actually, like, one, one thing about like, wh why you don't, as an architect, uh, just make the nicest building that has already been built and exactly. then just make another one of them. Um, right. And maybe, maybe make it a slightly better. I mean, it was, it was almost uh, the recipe of Arne Jacobsen, uh, like this uh, amazing architect. He took, you know, like he took the Lever House in New York, and then he built it uh, as Hotel Royale in Copenhagen, and he just detailed it slightly better. Mm. Uh, but I think um, the, the reason that, that there is an invitation to, to go beyond, um, and they, they call this uh, conversation instruments of change, which, which you find is actually, it, it is that the world has already evolved uh, a little bit mm. since, since the last time someone tried. Yeah. And, and um, so I think that the role of the, in this case the architect, but the, 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 the person being creative, is actually to, um, not so much to impose his or her will, mm. but rather to open the ears and the eyes and, and be ready to, uh, Embrace uh, this this new little ingredient that, when accommodated, it's it's like um, it can actually lead to a, a whole new direction, and that's that's where it's not some random variation or some eccentric, uh, you know, uh, twist. It's really rather like uh, one more step in a direction uh, where uh, where we're going. Mm -hmm. And and I like this idea that William Gibson, the the science fiction writer, he uh, he has a quote where he says, um, "The future is already here." It's just uh, very unevenly distributed, uh, and uh, and that's like you know when when you uh, w whenever you like get a new challenge, and I think this would be true in in music also. There there might be available instruments or available uh, technologies. There might also be you might have rediscovered more vernacular or sort of uh, indigenous instruments or sounds that you uh, hadn't been aware of before, uh, and uh, and the, the same in architecture. Like what was common sense half a year ago uh, is now, uh, you know, there's, there's a completely new possibility. Actually, sometimes you talk about skilled incompetence mm -hmm. when, when in an organization that faces change, uh, is that when you're, so, when you're so good at what you do, you already know the answer before you even started uh, questioning the, the situation. This, this is one of your main themes though, right? You, this is one of your main themes. You've always called yourself a non-musician and, and uh, insisted on uh, the amateuric approach to a certain extent. Yeah, well, in fact, I had a very good vindication of that tonight. I saw the band Low playing. Mm. I really, really liked what they did. And I thought, here you have three musicians who, who probably would not claim to be great musicians. And yet, somehow, the three of them make a fantastic kind of music. Um, I'm sure, I, I don't want to insult them by saying they're not great musicians, but I don't, I don't, think, they will I don't be think they would make that claim about themselves. Mm. I sincerely hope not, because I'd be very <laughs> embarrassed if it... But, but 
they clearly have something that you only ever find in rock music, mm. which is where people who don't do something very well end up producing something amazingly beautiful occasionally. Mm. That's a real mystery. That doesn't happen in classical music at all. It doesn't happen in classical art, actually, in any way at all. This is, this is why there's something different about this new music, I think. But it, it, so, well, looking back, classical, of course, uh, to a lot of people means old-fashioned. Mm -hmm. but, but you're actually getting at something that's maybe even more fundamental than classical uh, art. I mean, historically speaking, if we go beyond classical, if we go back to the, the, uh, the, the, the really old days, that seems to maybe have been the general mode of the artist, almost as a, or as a shaman or a, uh, a, uh, a societal figure, to not be an, uh, the perfectionist, but be somebody uh, trying, often in a communal or a, a, a group uh, uh, situation, to create something that's, that has that fundamental, you could say, rock energy. Do, yeah. do, you think, do you think that's true? Yeah, I think that's true. I, I mean, you can think of an artist in two different ways. You can either think of him as someone who's trying to communicate something. That's so you, you imagine the artist with a kind of big megaphone and she's shouting a message at you and if you're lucky you'll get the message at the other end. That's one vision of the artist. That's sort of classical vision of the artist, that the artist is a sort of channel for something that it comes from the divine and out to the masses, you lot. Um, but, but another image of the artist, and the one that I prefer, is, is of somebody who is a kind of trigger to, to set something going in a, in a culture. And I, I have this word, which I've used a lot, called, which is senius, S-C-E-N-I-U-S. So you know, classically, there's the idea of the genius, Beethoven, Bach, Shakespeare, Picasso the genius, the person with the huge brain who walks around with symphonies and masterpieces in their head. And the more you start to look at the history of art, the more you realize this is not true. That every time you find somebody like Picasso or Shakespeare or whoever else, they are part of a very complicated scene of people who are supporting each other and generating ideas together. So I think that should have a name the name for the fertile culture I call a senius. So it's the communal form of genius. And I more and more want to get away from that. This is against my own interests, I'm arguing here. I want to get away from the idea of the gifted and separate individual and to try to think of the culture as a kind of ecology where lots and lots of people are important. For example, to give you an idea, since we're here now, um, this festival is, a, is an ecology of some kind, and there are lots of people involved in it. Obviously, Caroline and Michael, who set it going, but then all the other people who are making this thing work in all their different ways. To, to start taking them away, it wouldn't work. It works as a unit, you know. It's not, um, it's not uh, a hierarchy that's making this work. But in that understanding, the classical idea of art is basically a, uh, a somewhat neurotic period of history then, of, of, of a period where we had this uh, false idea that... that yeah. And I mean, especially also in rock journalism, and I think, I mean, the way they, they talk about uh, uh, the star architect as well, yeah. this is the general mythological idea of the artist as someone creating all of it at once. 
Well, sorry. sorry. I think we're, um, I think it's just maybe an understanding of if you give up the idea of the of the lone artist as being the single source, mm. uh, and maybe rather think about, because I mean, my experience is also that the that the individuals that do uh, shine, and quite often, it doesn't take more than like like one um, one 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 person or one group to break the barrier and then it's like a floodgate that opens up and it liberates and it raises an entire community and you see that the sort of a, I've been uh, working with architecture for the last uh, 20 30 years and and the sort of the mecca of architecture has been moving around but always triggered like by like one or two groups but then it, it created this this whole uh, sort of uh, undergrowth but but I, but I do think that where the individual, in, and, and I think both music and, uh, and even more architecture is, is a very collective enterprise. It, it requires hundreds and hundreds of people to build a building. That the, the leader, let's say, who is often accredited uh, with the work is maybe the person who enables uh, the collaboration in the most productive way. And, and, and I normally work with this idea that because it's also false to say that it's all about process and it's all about like mm. uh, the group because it's not a democracy and we never vote in our office for instance but it's but it's neither a dictatorship because it's not like just because I say so uh, so we like this I like this idea of a meritocracy mm. where it's the idea put forward that merits the most that ends up uh, rising to uh, to the surface and you can say my job as the creative director is is not necessarily to come up with that idea although I would want to as much as anyone with a, you know, yeah, but, um, yeah, <laughs> it's like, it's a, du it's a duet, <laughs> uh, but, um, but actually to make sure, it's my job to make sure that it is the greatest idea that merits the most that actually ends up getting built regardless of who came up with it. So, so I think in that sense, Maybe this idea of the artist as a midwife, uh, the artist rather than as a, as, a, as a single source, or even as a shaman. I mean, for the shaman's role is never to sit on top of the village and decide what everybody does. They live on the outskirts. They're both outcast and elevated to a certain extent because they are there for the benefit of that process. But of course, as you say, it has to be that guy because he's best at it, and they get the result. Mm. For, for instance, like in, in sociology, they. Um, uh, you talk about emerging leadership. Naturally, emerging leadership uh, comes f from the individual in the group that manages to capture the concerns and dreams uh, of the most in the group. Therefore, the group will naturally gravi gravitate towards that person. Uh, so, and, and that could be for all kinds of reasons. It could be either chance that this person just happens to be the one who wants what most people can sign up for, or it can be a certain empathy that allows this person to, uh, to channel that. And you could imagine in art, it could also be that the, the one person who manages to move uh, the most that ends up becoming the direction uh, in a way. I, I, I never made this thought before, so um, <laughs> <laughs> feel well, free. Um, it's interesting that you mention empathy because people don't generally realize that empathy is a form of imagination. So, so the reason we're drawn to empathic people is not only because they seem to understand us, but also because we respect the fact that they are using their imagination. 
And since imagination is the only quality that humans have, really, that animals don't, apparently, I know there might be some animal rights people in here who think that animals are imaginative, but I can tell you so far the science doesn't support that idea very well. <laughs> we are the grand imagineers of the planet, or the universe as far as we know at the moment. And uh, empathy is one of the products of that prelude to part three. Oh, really? Way, yes. <laughs> okay, almost getting there. But if, if you've, you worked with some of those people that Bianca would talk about, and you are uh, uh, not arguably, certainly one of them yourself, one of those people who've been in groups and have helped push them that group to uh, another level of achievement, or you've worked with a lot of those people as well. Do, do you see any... Uh, how, how would you argue with that theory that there's a certain empathic or a certain uh, extra imaginative ability f with some people mm -hmm. to, to have that almost circuit role or, 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 or be an enabler to a certain extent? Yeah, well, working with groups is very, very interesting because you realize that they are all completely different. The mechanics within a group are very individual. And that must be true of families as well. I, I think any human group develops its own particular chemistry. And it's therefore very hard to make any sort of standard assumptions about things. For example, I've worked with bands where it looked like one person had, was having all the ideas. And you'd think, well, you could get rid of those others or just employ someone else much cheaper. But it turns out that the guy who never says very much and who seems to be reading the paper the whole time, uh, he plays in such a way that all these other people are enabled by the fact that he doesn't play very much. You know, he leaves a great big space where other people would fill it up. So, so part of the character of the music comes from this guy's actual reluctance to take part. It's a very peculiar equation, but I've seen that quite a few times. So, so what you find yourself doing is as you start to understand groups, is finding that the absences that a particular group has are as important as the strengths that they have. The, the things that are missing are as in, important as the strengths. So again, going back to the, the group Low, who I really enjoyed. The, the drummer is a girl, also a very good singer, actually. So I can't say they're not good musicians, they're, very, they, they're really good musicians because they make good music. Mm. That's the definition of a good musician, isn't it? They just wouldn't uh, do well at an audition, <laughs> probably. <laughs> well, maybe they would. God, I, I hope they're not here. I'm not trying to insult them. <laughs> I'm trying to make it, I'm trying to say that I really like them. <laughs> Well, okay. Um, no, I think your point is, is very clear. And I think it's actually just because the language is so uh, caught up in that classical idea of the competent artist that well, when if, you... Just to interrupt you yeah, for a moment. Yeah, please do. If you think of the... Sorry. You no, think please. of the classical paradigm of how things are organized, the orchestra is the absolute model of that. So you have God at the top, then the composer who somehow kind of receives messages from God, then he writes them down and that goes to the conductor who of course is an incredibly tempestuous and powerful and arrogant man always, 
And, and then he sort of communicates that to the leader of the orchestra and the lead violin. And, and gradually it sort of filters down to what is actually called the rank and file. Do you know that? That's what they call the people at the, the poor buggers who sit at the back soaring away all night. Um, so, so an orchestra is this paradigm of the pyramid. And the only other organizations that still do that really are um, the church, the classical church and the and classical armies. Mm. They still retain that kind of picture of organization. Everything else has moved. Everything else is turning into a network. Mm. Maybe some architect's offices still have the pyramid. I don't know. Oh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> like a, a, a single creative genius and a sort of an army of minions that are basically executive morons. Yeah, okay. sort of a, it's sort it's of a, a quite a, flat pyramid. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's, it's more like a T. Um, that, that, that's Protestantism. Tea. That's Protestantism for you. There's only God and all the rest of us. Well, yeah. you know, this, this, this view of the of how nature was organized was until Darwin came along, if you asked any Englishman how the, what the structure of the world was, they'd say, well, of course, at the top was the Englishman. And <laughs> next to that, you had horses and dogs, um, <laughs> then women, then the French, and, and then barbarians and bacteria or something like that. That would... Um, most of which I still agree with. <laughs> but but that, was, um, that was a way of looking at the world, and it was a way of thinking about how information flowed in the world, you know. So the intelligence was at the top, and the force, if you like, the, en the energy and the power was at the bottom. Well, if you start to think differently from that, and that's exactly what Darwin suggested, you know, when Darwin came along, he showed that the Englishman wasn't at the top of the heap. In fact, the whole of the human race wasn't in a particularly significant part in the heap. The heap was enormous and connected in all sorts of ways, and we were just one of the millions of species involved. So, and of course, Copernicus a few years earlier had shown that the Earth was not at the center of the universe either. So gradually, the history of humans is the history of us losing our sense of our specialness. Mm. We're not special, actually. But what is special, and the only thing that I think is special, is that we have this huge interconnected intelligence now. The fact that we're doing this, no other species has ever done this, has sat down and ex externalized the contents of their brains to each other and shared them. This is, this is the mm. source of everything for us. I think maybe, uh, like, since you're talking about like these um, different ways of allowing a collective of individuals to uh, create in concert, uh, and of course there's like the hierarchical uh, element. And then I was thinking, like, maybe there is, because I, I, one of the things that have uh, struck me by uh, by you as a musician is that. Like sometimes, and you were talking about art and science uh, to begin with, and, and a lot of people see a dichotomy between those two things. It's either sort of wildly expressive uh, or, or, or highly analytical. But, um, but when you actually combine the left brain and the right brain, uh, you get the ability to experiment intuitively and, and make courageous leaps 
but also to um, to reflect uh, and and sort of uh, and replot a course and even to transmit uh, what you're doing not just by leading by example but actually by putting things into perspective uh, and and I think um, like the, the the way we for instance work uh, in our office is that that there is a, a massive amount of unguided experimentation. So everybody has uh, a license to uh, create. Um, and uh, then we will look at what has been created and we will only discuss things that have materialized. So we're not gonna, I'm not gonna evaluate anyone's idea until they show me. Because you can have a million discussions about uh, stuff that's only inside the head. But then uh, once it's there, then any decision that is made, uh, we will reiterate why are we more drawn towards this direction or why do we want to combine this one with that one. And then so the, uh, the, the whole design process becomes a constant uh, re-education of the whole group in a way where we together help each other define what is so important here, why is this interesting, what's missing, you know uh, uh, what are the, what are the what are the potentials, the problems, uh, and and it becomes a form of empowerment, because even the newest member of the group who just joined the uh, office like uh, two weeks ago, during this process ends up getting full ownership, full intellectual ownership, of where it is we are going in this direction, and it's it's not because we are sort of, it's only cognitive processes that guide where we're going. We make most most of our choices with the with the gut but we constantly reiterate and reformulate mm. the direction uh, that this is taking. Um, so I think it's, maybe it is the left and right brains combined that allows this form of non-hierarchical uh, collaboration. The, yeah, so, hello. Oh, <laughs> there I am. I thought I'd, <laughs> thought I'd lost my voice. <laughs> um, so one of the things I think about a lot in terms of collaboration is actually the prelude to the fourth section of my there theory. There you go. Perfect, um, perfect. <laughs> We're like fully, fully on script. We're yeah. getting there. <laughs> um, this was all a plan. So when, when people think about um, the available behaviors that they have, they normally think in terms of controls. What can I control? You know, what, what can I do? What can I do? Um, because we have a history as, as a technological civilization, which we've been for many thousands of years. We have a history of learning to control things. Um, learning how, what this material is and how to make it and what not to do with it and so on and so on. What we also have, though we don't actually think about it that much, is also a history of learning to surrender successfully, which is to say, learning to go with things, to know how to go with the drift of things. Now, this is something that you see exemplified best of all in surfers. When you, when you watch a surfer, what they do is they use control to get onto a wave, and then they get carried along by it. Well, I think that range of, uh, that repertoire of behaviors, being able to move from control to surrender is, essential for humans to exercise. People who can't do one or the other are stuck. Mm. People who can only control are stuck. They don't know how, to, they're, they're, too, they're too stiff. They don't know how to uh, go with the flow, they'll break. I know some of those people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was one of those people. <laughs> but, uh, but, 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 but actually, I think there's some, there's an interesting point there. Cause, I mean, um, I, uh, I, I, I really like this idea of propensity of things, and also like this idea of the. And again, I, I think from uh, the point of view of the, uh, the architect, where the forces of, of the city are like so vast and so beyond us that we, we cannot hope to intervene. It's like. There, like, there are too many political votes, uh, too, too many angry neighbors, and, and, and too much money and too much legislation that we, we can't control anything, but we can try to sort of navigate uh, the forces that we, um, that we encounter. And that, that's why I think quite often when you're talking about artists, there's the, um, uh, the idea of the, uh, you know, the, the, the misunderstood genius and the, the angry... Uh, the angry young man or woman rebelling against uh, the establishment. Uh, so, so somehow you always associate the avant-garde with a revolution, uh, rebelling against something. Uh, and you mentioned Darwin. Uh, I really like this idea of being uh, not a revolutionary, but an evolutionary. Uh, and, and sort of to, um, to uh, first of all, in, in order to, for something to evolve, the problem about a revolution is that it's so catastrophic. Yeah. That's why it doesn't happen in... Um, uh, in, in, in Darwinian uh, biology, because if you have a revolution in your DNA, it becomes, you know, then you're just, you're born without a heart and then you're dead in a split second. So that's it's why, cancer, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly, it's, it's, uh, it's cancer or like fatal mutation. But, uh, but in, um, so therefore, like progressive uh, development and radical new abilities come through very gradual yeah. uh, evolutionary steps. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's true. So in, in that sense, just because you can't build it tomorrow, uh, but it would maybe take 20 years, uh, you should still start, and even more reason to start today, because it's gonna take 20 years. So like, instead of only doing the things you can do in an hour, uh, and then be done with it, like sort of the things that are actually so, so slow, you have to start with them even sooner to, to get there. Okay, so, so that's the perfect... Uh, thank you for that segue, because that's... Yeah, uh, yeah let's uh, give it a hand. So this talk is called Instruments of Change. Of course, there's a lot of puns in that, and that's funny, but we're actually at a place right now in human history where uh, a lot of change is going on, and we are talking about those changes in a way that is very hierarchical, top-down, revolutionary. All of these models that we've been dissing uh, for the last 40 minutes uh, are actually models that still dominate the way we talk about this. We talk about the changes facing human civilization as revolutions. It seems to me, if you take a step Back. That's actually how we've always talked about it. The book of Revelations is talking about one of those coming any day now. And we still talk in apocalyptical terms or apocalyptic terms. And we talk about, uh, 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 also we talk about uh, our own role in this as being uh, the, per the people who have destroyed the planet. This is, there's a lot of... Uh, perfect. That's very generous of you. Uh, I have... I, no, no, no. I have my own. Uh, gentlemen, um, so, so when we talk about change in this time uh, and, we, and we actually try to use some of these models that you both advocate, uh, the evolutionary view of it or even the, the seniors or the, scenic, uh, the, the scene uh, group version, uh, could we maybe 
avoid this incredible pessimism? I mean, at these times, the, the wisest of politicians talk about the world as if it's already done. We, they talk about tomorrow as we just have to deal with basically human extinction, which is not really, doesn't, you know, it's, uh, I think maybe globalization and globalized media creates an echo chamber with this age-old idea, we're almost dead, yeah. which is the human mantra, we're almost dead, is becoming too powerful and almost immobilizing. Um, but yeah, you're involved hello, in the Long Now Foundation. Hello, hello. Uh, perfect, hello. perfect. Hello. Sorry. So what, 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 do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, my friend Danny Hillis, who's a scientist, um, realized in about 1980 that the future for him was the year 2000. Mm. And he realized actually that for nearly everybody, 2000 was a sort of barrier that they hadn't looked past. I remember that. No, nobody had kind of thought what would happen on 2004 or something like that. 2000 was the sort of, that was it. And he said, the funny thing was, the closer we got to 2000, the more I was surprised because it didn't move. It still stayed 2000. Um, so he, he came up with this idea of, which you may have heard of called the clock of the long now, which is something we started in, in the early 1990s. And the idea was to try to build something that would last for 10,000 years. Not only that would last for 10,000 years, but that would do something for 10,000 years. So it would be a working machine to last for 10,000 years. Um, in fact, a clock was what we decided. And we're, we're now are building the first one of those. In, in fact, it's quite close to being finished. It's mm. 560 feet high, and it's in Texas, in a mountain. <laughs> um, now, when we first started talking about this, people would say, well, that's such a fucking stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> and so you'd say, well, why do you think that's such a stupid idea? And they'd say, but, you know, in 5,000 years, you could have floods and fires and 10,000 years, you'd have twice as many of them and nuclear. You say, okay, well, have you ever thought about 10,000 years ahead before, before this conversation? And they'd say, no. So really what we were trying to do was to, uh, rather like I was saying earlier about building things that belong in a future, they, they, they aren't here to serve this moment so much as to serve the idea of a future moment. So this was an idea of creating a monument to the thought of thinking in the long term. Mm. So that's what we've been doing. And we have this thing called the Long Now Foundation. The, oh, thank you. <laughs> Maybe we'll start a Danish chapter. I think, I think there's, uh, anybody want to join? But, but the, um, the, the point about it is it's very slow. You know, we, we don't do anything very quickly, um, and we don't make any fast decisions either. In fact, we, in our 20-odd years of existence, we've done hardly anything, really. <laughs> but what kind it's, of perspective it's, it's like does... like the, the... What do you call it? Like the, the Department of Motor Vehicles in Zootopia, <laughs> yeah. where it's all sloths. Uh, I'm the but, only one who watches uh, yeah, Disney obviously. cartoons. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but Brian, what, what perspective does that 
give you on what I was talking about earlier, this, this uh, 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 imminent doom thing that's going around these days, where I, I always try to remind people that human beings in somewhat this physical form with, as far as we can see, these uh, mental capacities have been existing for 150 or 200,000 years. Yeah. And a lot has changed, uh, I mean, <laughs> obviously. So things are going to continue to change. Why are we so afraid of that? Um, I think we have, we're, we're designed to be afraid. Um, those of us who, who are alive today are the descendants of people who were frightened <laughs> um, and who acted on their fears, who avoided dangerous situations, who, who took mortality seriously. The ones who didn't, didn't leave descendants by definition. So, except, except it's not entirely true, because if you stay in Darwinian terms, then uh, actually self-sacrifice mm -hmm. is what could save your children. And yes. therefore your genes would survive even though you didn't. So, so therefore like bravery, uh, self-sacrifice, mm -hmm. uh, sort of uh, uh, non-selfish behavior is also uh, a highly evolved trait. Uh, yes. that works on the same mechanism yeah. of Darwinism. So, so that, well, that, we that, that doesn't speak against each other. I think, I think that's you sacrifice yourself because you're, you want to save someone your, from your the thing you're afraid of. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that's actually two very positive yeah, I, I think they're consistent, actually, but he's, he's quite right that, that uh, it's not just about the mm. individual looking no. after themselves. It's about looking after a gene line, basically. Yeah, 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 so I don't think we're like a, in evolutionary terms, like a, a species of like scared little mice. Like we actually, uh, I, th I really think that bra bravery and, and fearlessness uh, is, uh, is also an attribute. And I, and I, and I, and I, th I think it's also not fair to say that, because if, if you talk like guys like Hans Rosling, for instance, uh, he's one of the guys who really understands the, the health of the planet at least and, uh, and how it's evolving. Uh, he, he has this like crusade right now where he's criticizing media mm. to be uh, overemphasizing uh, catastrophe and negativity yeah. because it's it's essentially what you you learn, I guess, in uh, in journalist school as being good journalism is um, conflict. A, a, a piece of a, a good a piece of interesting news is a story that someone else doesn't want uh, out. <laughs> Uh, it's not whether it's relevant or if it's useful. It's, it's like w whether or not uh, it's, it's going to hurt someone to, to have it told. And, and I think that, um, that, that creates this, uh, this skew because at the same time, the rational optimist, uh, uh, Matt Ridley, he, he argues that he's not an optimist out of naivety. It's just simply when you study the evidence, there is the only rational uh, point of view when you have the long perspective is optimism. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, <laughs> because, uh, because, because we, and, and, and his theory, and I also believe in this, it's back to maybe this idea of, of the communal, is that it is because we as humans develop the ability to collaborate on very, very complex projects, more complex than any individual could undertake on their own. And because we somehow unlocked the, the genius of seniors, uh, we, we are now constantly getting better and better at, the, uh, at what we're doing. And, and if you, also, if you look at the mobilization that happened over the last, since the, the Rio conference, 1992, where they developed the term sustainable development, and then like 20 years of failure, but now we had Paris uh, six months ago. And if you saw the last TED talk by uh, Al Gore, 
uh, he's turning into an optimist uh, of all people. But is, <laughs> it, it, but is it maybe also because we, 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 when we look at history, we think history as 50 years, or uh, we think of it as, as may, maybe if we uh, if we're really well read, we say 2,000 years, but history is, is much larger than that. And discovering sustainable development mm -hmm. in 92 and maybe effectuating it in 50 years, if that's what it takes to be complete about it, is in hist historical terms mm -hmm. the blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, there's another thing happening as well, which is that as our power increases, our power not as individuals and as a species, we are also capable of making much bigger fuck-ups. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so we're capable of much bigger successes uh. and much vaster forms of, of cooperation. I, I know Matt Ridley and I, I have argued with him about this. Mm. Um, so I'm not quite as much of an optimist as him. I'm an optimist with a bit more caution than he is. I think he's one of those guys who take acid and think he could fly. <laughs> that's, that's optimism. <laughs> But, but it might not be that rational. But uh, <laughs> I, there is actually, now you're saying this like of planetary scale fuck-ups, uh, like I, th I think it's, it's maybe more like a, a reminder uh, that some, ge uh, some geologists refer to our present geological era as the Anthropocene, mm, yeah. uh, which is this idea of uh, that, that we are living in a geological area where the mankind or humans have a higher impact on the geological changes of our planet than any other force, including tectonic movement, radiation, yeah. uh, mm. etc. And, um, and, and some believe that it started with uh, the Industrial Revolution in the mid-19th century. Some believe that it actually started with a sedentary society when we domesticated plants and animals and we started uh, growing the land, uh, you know, redirecting uh, water streams, uh, building cities. And we actually uh, created a, you know, a sedentary culture. Um, and, and with that, we now have such a high impact on our planet that even if we want the responsibility or not, it's already ours. Mm. Uh, it's like a Spider-Man and, and with great power comes great responsibility that uh, we simply have to- I often quote, yes. <laughs> exactly. And I think, I think Biage, that's gonna be the perfect quote to end this talk on. Uh, so we both have, we have the optimists, but we have the cautionary optimists. And we have the realization that we now have the power to do both great fuck-ups <laughs> and maybe greater stuff than we've ever done before. And I want to thank you both for coming. Brian Eno, Bjarke Ingels, give them a big hand. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.